All right, everybody, welcome. It is. Hey, good to see you. It is wonderful to have you with us. Oh, this is loud. Is that is that too loud? Is it all right? It's not buzzing. Is that buzzing annoying anybody? It's just annoying me. That's fine. Okay, good. Welcome. It's good to have you with us. Um, I, I look around, and not only have some people who are normally sitting here moved over there, which, as I said a moment ago to them, it's like if you went to see an orchestra and the violins were on the right. It would just like, be really disorienting. We've got a whole bunch of new people, or people visiting us, people here for the first time, which means that we get to um, uh, submerge ourselves in the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of rapid-fire all the way through for the first few minutes before we jump into today's passage, which is chapter 10. So that'll be fun. Um, those of you who are looking, watching online, we have the usual team of people um, ready to take your questions. So uh, we're sorry you can't be here with us, but we hope it's um, good enough for you there. And feel free to throw any questions our way if you'd like to do so. And um, the gentlemen at the back will put their hands up on your behalf and um, uh, answer your, ask your questions to us. Um, oh, and now he's turned the microphone on. So, so now... <laughs> You know what I was saying, because I say the same thing every week. You'll be fine. Um, uh, Right, let's pray. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 2 to the end. I'll explain why it's verse 2 again in a moment. Those of you who were here last week know, um, and then we'll just jump in with that. So let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for your word, the Bible. We are conscious of its depth, and we're conscious also of our shallowness and of the deep waters in which we wade and swim and sometimes feel in danger of drowning day by day. We pray, Father, that as we navigate the book of Ecclesiastes today, you would show us some of these murky depths. You'd help us to see with greater clarity what uh, life is like, or at least to see where the confusion and the perplexity is likely to arise from so that we're prepared for it. Watch over us, we pray. Give us insight, help us to benefit from each other. And we pray we'd leave this evening transformed and better able to live lives of faithfulness as servants of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. So, actually, it works quite well that we've got some new people uh, here this evening because it means I can share with you a quotation that I came across recently, which is just seems to me another way of summarising brilliantly the message of Ecclesiastes. It comes from H.L. Mencken. I think I'm saying his name correctly. Um, if you've walked past my study on the second floor of the building, you will have seen it because it's on my study door. If I recall correctly, it says, for every complex question, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. <laughs> and the book of Ecclesiastes is the explanation of all the wrong. It shows us the complexity, the difficulty to fathomness of life. It shows us that life is uh, frustrating. Uh, life cannot be predicted. Life is filled with sorrow and frustration. The apparent mechanical simplicities of Proverbs work all the time until they don't. And Ecclesiastes, by the same man, Solomon, who wrote most of the Proverbs, or many of the Proverbs, is the, yeah, until they don't. Uh, In particular, it takes us on a journey traversed by the wisest of men, well, no, the second wisest of men, Solomon, as he looks back 
from the perspective at the end of his life, upon all the things that he probably wished he'd knew when he, known when he was your age or mine or younger. Uh, and we can helpfully dive into it just, again, by way of recap. And those of you who've been here from the beginning, I hope you'll bear with us as we just look at this. And I'll show you a, a few extra things if we have time, just even at this stage. Just turn back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where... Uh, again, we've seen this so many times, but the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, is the son of David is Solomon. You get references that are unambiguously to do with him uh, elsewhere in chapter one, and, and it's obvious from the end and so on who he is. But it's interesting, he calls himself the preacher, or literally Kohelet, the one who gathers the kahal or the assembly. So he's the one who assembles all the people. Probably for lots of reasons he uses that self-designation, because these are words for all the people. Because these are words that can only really be understood if we get all the people together and wrestle with them. These are not things that are accessible to one man alone. Uh, the other usages of kahal, to assemble or assembly in scripture, uh, often are to do with the church. Solomon gathered the kahal at the temple to worship God. And so maybe this is the counterpart to the temple. You've been to the temple to worship God with the people of Israel. And now you go out into the world and you find all its bewildering complexity. And what you find um, in chapter 1 verse 2 is summarized. And who's been here from the beginning? Hevel of hevels, it says literally. Uh, In your translations it might say meaningless or vanity and There's something of that, well, vanity, certainly. There's something of that in the meaning of the the Hebrew word here, the hevel that's translated vanity or meaningless. But what does hevel actually refer to? It refers to a a specific concrete thing. Well, not a concrete thing. It's very non-concrete. What is it? Mist. Mist, yeah. Mist or vapor or fog. Life is like mist. Life is like fog. Now, what's fog like? Well, you can't fence it in. You can't predict which way it's going to blow, this way or that. You certainly can't control it. It doesn't last for very long. I mean, you can be gazing out at the mist over Lake Worth of a uh, spring morning and it's blowing this way and that, and then suddenly you're looking five minutes later, it's all gone. And so it's perplexing and frustrating. And if life is like that, well, that's going to be quite difficult to navigate. But at the same time, as you look out across Lake Worth and you see the mist, it's staggeringly beautiful. And I won't bore you again with the story I've told you of an even more beautiful lake back in England. <laughs> Brings tears to my eye. Um, Grovelands Park Lake. My children. <laughs> um, in Grovelands Park Lake, there are blackberries and ducks. And one of my children used to call ducks yak-yaks. Guess why? Yeah, anyway. Uh, and so we called it the Blackberry Yak Yak Park. And it, as the mist blew around, I used to go there in the mornings to walk and chill out and pray and worry about everything. Um, not literally worry about everything. Um, and it's just staggeringly beautiful. And life is like that as well. And one of the perplexing things about Ecclesiastes is that it's so gritty and realistic. It, it tells us that there's no way of avoiding the frustration of life through work or through the pursuit of pleasure or even through the pursuit of wisdom and then it tells us that there's a time to be born and a time to die 
and there's a time to plant and then a time to pluck up what's planted and there's a time to weep. And how often we, we think that Christian piety means avoiding all those sad times. Like the book of Ecclesiastes tells you that it's okay to give your kid a pet rabbit, even though one day she'll wake up in the morning and little fluffy tail bunny rabbit will be lying stone cold at the bottom of her hutch. It's okay to do that because it's the time to cry. There's a time to mourn. It's okay to get a lump in your throat when you drive past a lamppost or a barrier on the interstate that's got a bunch of flowers attached to it and the front of the barrier is all crumpled up. It's a good thing to do that. There's a time for sorrow and pain. And at the same time, chapter 9, verse 7, go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your heavy, misty life that God has given you under the sun. Earlier in chapter 2, Solomon says, there's nothing better than for a man to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This is a gift of God. So can you see what we're being confronted with? I love giving the book of Ecclesiastes, again, as I've said before, um, to people who aren't Christians, who are interested in find, reading about the Bible, because they're expecting me to give them something about Jesus. And it is about Jesus, in a way. But what they've heard is what many of us, if we're not careful, can secretly come to believe, where we get into this kind of childish and superficial groove. And we imagine that being a Christian means that, well, everything's okay now because... I'm a Christian, my sins have been forgiven, so there's nothing ever in my life that will cause me sorrow. And if I feel sad, that must mean I'm, there's something wrong and, and Jesus has come to fix all that. So I, basically, being a Christian means I should be happy all the time. And we know it's not true. And yet we know we're supposed to rejoice in spite of those sorrows. And we know, in other words, that life is far more gritty and complicated than we customarily um, kid ourselves that it is and all the experiences that you have when you don't know what to do that's normal I was talking to somebody earlier today um, uh, our new pastor sorry the other two of us aren't leaving but the, uh, we, our third pastor Pastor Shaw is on his way here he's somewhere between Albuquerque and Fort Worth hopefully nearer to Fort Worth now um, Somebody said, is he going to have any pastoral counselling alongside his administrative responsibilities? I'm like, yes, he is. <laughs> right? Because it's just so, all of us actually have this responsibility for each other. I'm going to be thinking about this in a podcast or two in the next few weeks. But yes, because the, the experience of just finding life a little bit overwhelming are normal. And at the same time, I had a conversation recently with another man who I'd hoped to meet up with him in June or July when he sent me a, an email expressing questions and anxieties that he had. And we just never got around to meeting up. And, and I met him just very recently, and he's, he's been doing wonderfully because he's been gritting his teeth and 
uh, fighting against sin and anger and frustration and bitterness just wonderfully. And I, I said to him at one point, look, if we actually met in July last year, I'd have told you if I dared to do exactly what you've just been doing. Because sometimes, and again, back to the hevel mist of life, you have to just manage on your own. Have you been in that situation? Maybe not for a long period of time, or maybe for a longer than you'd like period of time. Um, You just need to figure out what to do. Every circumstance is in a sense, to be expected. And Ecclesiastes guides us through those circumstances. And so it brings us to chapter 10. And I was doing some preparation, some reading about reading for this, and um, I've I come across this commentary which I've been using. I'll show it to you. It's this one by... Um, it's Daniel... C. Fredericks and Daniel J. Estes. Uh, Fredericks wrote the Ecclesiastes section and Estes wrote the Song of Songs section. And I was reading it in the way that you normally read commentaries if you're a pastor, um, which is more or less like this. <laughs> you know, sort of, yeah, eyes slightly glazing over. Hoping against hope you might find something in there that's useful. And I get this slap around the face. Check this out. The instruction in this chapter, and I know we've not read the chapter yet. I'm going to read it in a second. The instruction in this chapter centers on the workplace. That perked me up a little bit because I'm thinking of doing some teaching about that in the next few months as well, especially for the men's discipleship, but also other contexts. The instruction in this chapter centers on the workplace, where a substantial number of adults spend many of their waking hours and where folly is displayed on a regular basis. (laughs) What are you laughing at? Yeah, okay, fair enough. Pleasant working conditions with civil people are a wonderful blessing. But working with some people can call for an extra measure of patience and wisdom. That is especially true if one's supervisor is not exactly one with the wisdom of a cohelet. The author of Ecclesiastes. So I'm thinking, okay, this could be relevant. This could be interesting. And then he writes this. And this is a quote from a commentary. I'm like, who do you think you are? Will the local church take responsibility for addressing in all specificity the issues that most of its members struggle with during the working week? Christians have such wonderful opportunities to transform their culture and society through the daily routine activities of the marketplace. It is a frontier of sanctification that ought to be explored and developed by churches. What a wonderful impact would be made for the kingdom if our spiritual leaders were intensely attuned to the marketplace and took God's interest and instructions about it into the Sunday morning pulpit and the midweek Bible study meeting. (laughs) I'm like, shots fired. So I thought, okay, um, fair enough. And that's what I'd like to do. Uh, and so to summarise, and then we're going to read it, and then we'll jump in in some detail. To summarise, this chapter, chapter 10, highlights, as I mentioned in an email earlier today, that the price of folly 
the cost of it, the cost of not being wise, the cost of not taking Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and the rest of the Bible, the, cl- the cost of being a fool turns out to be much higher than you'd ever realised, even in your most pessimistic moments. And that depend- that's the same whether it's you that's the fool or somebody you're working with. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, the focus is on situations which have their most obvious parallel for us in the workplace. It's not talking about modern 21st century offices. Obviously, it's not. But as we read through this, if you can, when you see a leader or a king, think of a boss or a CEO, and where you see situations in which you're dependent on somebody else for instruction, Imagine that in a workplace kind of context. Then you'll very readily see the application to the modern world and some aspects of what I'm going to read obviously fit that mould. And I know you guys, it's kind of funny looking at you because you're his boss, right? Which I discovered earlier. Well, it's going to be very interesting then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks, boss. All right, okay. So now um, Ecclesiastes 10, we're starting at verse 2. Just grab your Bibles, open them up if you've not got them. Um, the reason is... Um, I agree with um, Daniel Fredericks. Who am I to disagree with Daniel Fredericks on the book of Ecclesiastes? I agree with him that um, though in some of your Bibles there is a kind of obvious break and a change into poetic material at chapter 10, verse 1, actually there's poetic material everywhere, even in some of the stuff which might be marked out as prose in your Bibles. But there is a thematic break in verse 2. So I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to work through it together and see what we make of it. So chapter 10, verse 2. Here goes. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, I know what you're all thinking. I don't think it's about that. That's a post-French Revolution thing with the right and the right. But anyway, um, the point is there's wisdom and folly and there's a stark contrast between them, all right? We can talk about politics at some point, if you like, but not here. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offences to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler, Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a man's mouth win him favour, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time. 
for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. There's a possible translation, bit of coolness going on there. The word, the Hebrew verb to answer, anah, also means afflict. It's, not, it's a totally different word, it's just with the same letters. Um, uh, so anah means answer and anah means afflict. So is it money afflicts everything or money answers everything? We'll have to see. Um, and then finally, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. All right. Now, let's walk through it a bit at a time. And what's the best thing to do? I, I'll, I'll give you the quickest possible overview of the different sections that I can, and then we'll jump into them one at a time. So, okay, you've got to really concentrate for about one minute and then you've got to really concentrate for the next hour, and then we'll be done. Okay. So, verses 3 and 4, you've got a summary. Wise and fools. Verses, sorry, verses 2 and 3, you've got that summary. Verses 4 to 7, you've got, what happens if you've got a foolish boss? Or a foolish king? Answer is, all kinds of trouble. And most of it you can't do anything about. Then verses 8 to, to 11 are linked by this reference to the serpent in verse 8 and the serpent in verse 11. Is that a chiasm? No, probably not. But it's some kind of marking off the structure. And it seems to be to do with things you might do at work, verses 9 and 10, or... Dumb things you might do at work, verses 8 and 11, maybe. Then verses 12 to 15, obviously, are about the damage that mere talk, just talking about whatever it is, will do. We're definitely going to come to that. 16 and 17, this is more on the king, and maybe we'll do that together with verses um, 4 to 7. Good king, all great. Bad king, terrible. 18, the cost of laziness. 19, I don't know what that's about. It kind of depends what that verb is at the end. Maybe we'll have to figure that out. And then verse 20, not really sure what that's about either. Um, except it's, it's about words again, isn't it? And the damage that they can do. And maybe it's woven into the thematic structure because of the observation that the words you say could find their way to the king who's in charge of you. Ever said anything and then your boss found out? There we are. So that's, those are the kind of rough sections. Are you with me? Now let me pause one second. Hey, um, any questions or comments so far? Is it making sense? You've got the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell? You're good? You've got all the, some of the different, don't laugh, some of the different things that um, this chapter is about. Should we just jump straight in? Right, okay. So verses 2 and 3. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. What's that really talking about? It's not talking about whether you vote green or blue, is it? Right? What is it talking about? This is, now, just for the sake of you guys who are here for the first time, you might not understand, but um, this is not one of those Bible studies where I do all the work. 
I don't mind long silences. Sometimes I'm really kind and I just do all the talking. It's normally when I get carried away and can't stop, but um, really I'm, I'm looking at you, kids. So Mrs. Claghorn's got the hang of it already. I'm going to be looking for some of you newcomers as well. Yeah, Mrs. Claghorn, verse 2, help us out. Yeah, very good. They're opposites, very good. Now, and, and just look at the details. Um, in verse 2, it's the heart. Can you see that? It's the desires. What you're passionate about or what you're committed to, perhaps. Verse 3, it's not really about um, what you're feeling. It's about what you're doing. Can you see? A wise man's heart, sorry, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, fool's heart to the left. It's the desires. It's which, which path you're going to take. And then you zoom in on the fool. Even when the fool walks on the road, and this is always a, walking in the Bible is almost always a metaphor for life, the way you live. Um, Paul uses the verb in this way, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, he's always talking about walking as a metaphor for living. And in some of your Bibles, it's actually translated as live, but it's actually the verb to walk. Um, The heart, verse 2, the life, verse 3. And what's the life like? Even when the fool does something, what's it like? Verse 3. Samuel. It's just, um, you know, there's an old old saying when I read this verse, better to keep one's mouth shut and be thought a fool then to open it and remove all doubts. Right, yes, yes, that's right. So verse 3, um, he lacks sense in the way that he walks, and then he opens his mouth and, as Samuel said, removes all doubt about whether maybe this man is a fool, maybe he's not. No, he definitely is, we heard him. And so what this does, this, this sets us up for the expectation that at some point we're going to come back to the theme of words. What's the man say? And it turns out, that is a, a little more complex than we might have realised. But can you see the difference? Here's the wise man, right from your perspective. Here's the fool. And they're going to start off heading in different directions. And even if the fool goes somewhere, it's going to be a disaster. So look out for that, especially when he opens his mouth. Look out for that. With me so far? Right, now verse 4. Verse, yes, verse 4. I'm getting the verses tangled up because I've, I've scribbled on my Bible and I can't read them properly. My fault. Nobody else is, but... I'll read verse 4 to 7 again, and then we'll try and figure out what this is about. If the anger of the ruler... See, it's more general than just a king. ...rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness will lay great offences to rest. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler... Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Right. Let's have a crack at this, like verse 4 and there's 5 to 7, isn't there? What do you want to do first? Anybody got any thoughts about either of those bits? This young man's hand's going up. Yeah? His dad's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> Let's do verse 4 first. Come on. If the anger of the, the ruler rises against you, what, what are you supposed to do? 
seems like it's an, it's at least an analogy of the, the proverb that talks about a calm answer turning away wrath. Right, very good. A calm answer might turn away wrath. That's like in the Proverbs. So it's maybe a prohibition against cowardice. Yeah, possibly. The ruler, yeah, the ruler gets angry at you, don't just run away. Don't, right. If you don't avoid the situation, you've got to deal with it. Yeah, don't leave your place. Is, is it saying you've got to do something? You've got to act? You've got to be decisive? Don't be motivated by fear. Right, yes. Both in one second. John Henry? that you've done something wrong and that the anger is justified or mm-hmm. I read that and I think of times where people have been angry at me and <laughs> they should yeah. have been. Yeah, yeah. And if I respond in kind, we get nowhere but the time and patience right. it becomes clear that maybe they ought not be angry about what, whatever the right. situation is. Right. See, it's really interesting because we want to ask I mean, that kind of diagnostic question. Is the ruler's anger justified? Because we think it will make a difference to how we ought to respond. Well, really. If your boss is really, really cross with you, best response? Calm. Um, kind of responsive. Ready to listen. Maybe calmness will lay great offences to rest. Maybe there's a way, if you are at fault for the ruler's anger, rather than you know, the instinct being just to, you've been offended, your honour has been affronted. You know, you've got, calmness will lay great offences to rest. Probably more likely here, though, is the, the scenario in view is one in which the king's anger is unjustified or, or ill-directed. And the reason for that is um, verses 5 to 7. It doesn't look like a very wise ruler. So what's the best thing to do if your boss is, or your king or your ruler is flying off the handle for no good reason? Are you going to be able to stop? The... Think yourself back into uh, late Bronze Age Israel for a moment and ask yourself whether you could, by getting angry with uh, the, this kind of king, whether you could do anything about him. Like, does that, there's, feels like there's not much you can do. How, how do you feel about that? This is not a, an interpretive question. It's a question to interrogate your thoughts about. How, how do you feel about the situation in which you, there's nothing you can do about the unjustified rage of a, a bully or a fool who happens to be in charge. How do you feel about that? Samuel? Well, one of the new temptations is to feel a little helpless. Yeah, yeah. Helpless. The term victim comes to mind, yeah? Yeah. Because, of course, you're a victim. Justified, though? Yeah. I mean, is the anger of the ruler, the boss, justified in any way? Um, if he's got the character of the boss in verses 5 to 7, probably not. Probably yeah. Okay. yeah. And it's interesting, you know, um, sorry, bear with me a second. Mrs. Clackhorn, yeah. Well, I think that's a good 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, isn't, so um, Abigail, um, her husband Nabal, uh, as his name is, so is he, he means fool. Um, she was able to act in a way that brought some good out of that situation. Yeah? Yeah. Um, interestingly, so she did something. I wonder if it's the kind of thing that Solomon would say, yeah, that, that counts calmness. You know, it, I don't think we're going to find in Scripture an encouragement to do nothing in those situations. But it's interesting, calmness. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of the previous sermon from Joshua, where he talked about the prophet, uh, Rahab and the spies going into there. Uh, Rahab's house, and the narrative is, describes hmm. them as fairly passive, and things are happening to them. Right. And there's, I think there were two instances where they are actually acting. Or it, yeah, yeah. The point yeah. Was, that I remember was, especially as men, we ought to be in control mm-hmm. and active and avoid letting ourselves just become the object of others. Right, right. Things. And so I think in this situation uh, with an angry boss, psychologically we know that when somebody's angry, there's all these hormones and things that shoot into your brain to make you want to go angry, and you fly off the rail too, and then, right, right, like right. you mentioned in Bronze Israel, you can get your head lopped off. Yeah, yeah. That's five minutes one minute later, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you do that, and that's the result of being out of control. Right. And so this is a description of the in control. Yes. Don't do the reactionary thing. Yeah, Stay yes. Stay in control, and you'll be better off for it. No, I like that. I like that. The, there is a sense in which um, godly Christian maturity means being in a position to take control of your emotions and your life and your circumstances, not just being the object of somebody else's action. And sometimes you can't. Like, um, you, nothing is infinitely robust. If you, if you drop a tennis ball from high enough, when it hits the ground, it will break. And so what do you do with this? I, I, part of me wants to say, do we take it as an encouragement to try to control the situations we get ourselves into maybe but I suspect the and I think that's right yeah um, the spies in you mentioned in Joshua chapter 2 are useless and and ought to have been in more control of their situation and were helplessly dependent on Rahab so there's a sense of course in which we ought, this is Genesis 1 stuff isn't it it's take dominion over the circumstances in which we find ourselves, the emotions that we experience and so on. Don't just be pushed around by those things, but then occasionally you find yourself and you're entirely subject to somebody else's whims. And Ecclesiastes isn't going to solve that problem for you. You're just stuck with it. Now, you can be emotionally and spiritually prepared for that. Think about Jesus for a second. Can you think of any situations in which, okay, humanly speaking, 
it seemed that he was entirely at the mercy of cowardly, unjust, tyrannical rulers. <laughs> and once you think about it, you think, yes, of course. And there is a way of being prepared for that. They're like the Christ-like way of handling the trial before Pilate, for example, which it's not, oh, thank goodness Jesus managed to avoid that situation in which he was a victim. Of, no, no, he, he navigated it literally perfectly. Yeah. Um, re, hear this as a description of Jesus' response to Pontius Pilate and the effects of the death he died. Calmness will lay great offences to rest. Isn't that just, that's some spectacular Christology right there. Calmness, like at one point he's not even saying anything at all. Other points it's like, yeah, you have said so. And the whole um, unfolding of his death laid great offences to rest. That's not Christology technically, it's the doctrine of the atonement. I love the Bible, the way it kind of weaves all these different things together, you know. So, and there's a sense in which um, unjust suffering, this is Colossians chapter 1 and other, other New Testament texts that speak of unjust suffering that Christians experience, often at the hands of other people, is um, a, in some sense echoing or f- following in the footsteps of the unjust suffering of Jesus. We talked about that in other contexts. We can talk about it again. So are you with me? Ecclesiastes doesn't solve the problem. There you are. You, you, might, you might get stuck with this. But now you know that you might get stuck with this. All right, verses 5 to 7. Uh, this is an evil that every single one of us has seen under the sun. My boss is completely stupid. As it were, an error proceeding from the ruler... Folly is set in many high places because they work for rich companies and they have expensive lobbyists. And the rich sit in a low place. Rich, that is, people who've made money because they are smart and hardworking and diligent, but they are shunted to the side because they don't have influence. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. You ever seen anything like that? Yeah, go on, Samuel. Well, hey, remember the part in the book of Esther where that was that was a complete, um, you know how when Mordecai started off in the sackcloth and ashes, and Haman was at the top, and then hmm. after the whole "thus shall be done" to the man whom the king delights to honor, Mordecai yeah, yeah. was up top, and Haman yes. was yes, leading. yes, interesting. So it, it, it's intriguing because. Remember when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, um, we let the doctrine of the resurrection leak in to our perspective on this vanity, didn't we? Remember I talked about um, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 58, where it says, uh, Therefore, my brothers, stand firm, always um, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. It's a very strange thing to say after a book that spends 12 chapters saying your labour is in vain. So what's the difference? Well, it's 1 Corinthians 15, it's the resurrection. So there's something about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection with him that means that 
this injustice, this vanity is going to be corrected. But it might not be corrected yet. Can you think of anywhere in the Bible, anywhere else in the Bible, where you've got folly set in a high place and the rich or those who are worthy in a low place or slaves on horseback and metaphorically and princes walking on the ground like slaves? Anywhere else? Uh, Will. Joseph. Yeah? Very good. Jo- Joseph in the pit made a slave in prison, etc. Yeah, and then... Very good, thank you. Mr. Robinson. Yeah, it's, it's Jesus again, isn't it? I have seen princes walking on the ground. Isn't that just, again, it's just a remarkable way of picturing the work of Christ. Solomon isn't, what we want him to say is, and this isn't right, and here's the three-step program to deal with the injustice. Like, um, Maybe the way to deal with the injustice is for the prince to walk on the ground. Maybe. I'm, I'm reminded of, um, I was thinking about this last week, uh, how long Israel spent in slavery. Like 400 years in slavery, there or thereabouts, is that kind of time. And um, you remember the promise that God made to Abraham which is fulfilled in the people of Israel, is made in various ways in Genesis. At one point, it's said that your descendants will be like stars of the sky. You know, you remember the imagery of stars from earlier in Genesis. Um, they, they are uh, images of heavenly rulers. In Genesis chapter 1, it said that God made the, the, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he also made the stars. The implication is the stars rule as well. And so in scripture, stars and kings are often associated, which is why when the king of Babylon dies, Isaiah sees a prophecy of a falling star. And when a new star rises in the east, all the magi know that a king has been born in Israel, because obviously it's Israel's scriptures that depict stars as kings. And so the people of Israel are these stars, kings. We the new Israel in Christ, reign with him. And then they, there they are for 400 years walking on the ground like slaves. Solomon's seen all that. And the, here's the temptation. You think, oh, everything's gone wrong. What a disaster. Here I am. I've been working my whole career, or so far, like two years or whatever it is you've been doing. Or however long you've been working. Maybe you've been working a lot longer than that. And you feel like you've just been overlooked again and again and again by a boss who cares more about doing favours for his stepson and his daughter-in-law than uh, you, actually rewarding the diligent person who's making more than money. And you think this isn't, something's gone wrong, and something has gone wrong, but nothing's gone wrong with the plan of God for the salvation of the world. Can you see the difference? And this is... It's the picture of the world that Ecclesiastes is trying to give us. It's not all neat and simple. Even when it's going right. You with me? Let me pause a second. Any, any questions or comments on that? I think, Mr. Uh, you had your hand up at one point? Did you? Yeah. 
or not? Well, I think of the, just the perspective that yeah. it gives you. So often we want to react in our, our flesh. Yeah. But if you take this really uh, sifter to heart and calmness, it does allow you to reflect on, well, what has God made me to be? Made me yeah. to be an heir, a co-heir with Christ. Mm. Yeah, it does. I think there, we've come to this a, a number of times in, um, in Ecclesiastes, that what it's trying to do is to broaden our, the perspective with which we see things. Uh, because otherwise, if we have a very simplistic perspective, we might either think something terrible has gone wrong or react foolishly when things take a turn that we would not have chosen. So, so to know that this is normal or this is not a sign of disaster is helpful. Uh, yeah, Aaron. This is from the US. Yeah. Uh, she asked, why is folly compared to the rich and not compared to the wise? Why is folly compared with the rich and not with the wise? Yeah, notice that in verse 6. That's a good question. So folly is set in many high places and you're expecting it to say, and the wise in a low place. But it actually says the rich. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think it, it, may, it may reflect the proverbial assumption that those who are rich are so because they've been diligent and hardworking consistently. But it's hard... That, that's the problem with that is that's Proverbs. This is Ecclesiastes. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like a better answer than that. And so I'm not particularly satisfied with that myself. And so I can see where the question's coming from. Anybody else any ideas? What, what's, what's it about? Why is it the rich who are highlighted? Um, it's interesting that highlight on the rich when he's the wealthiest man hmm. in the world at that time. I, I find right. Kind of, oh, yes. Is he talking about himself or is he talking about huh. Maybe. Yeah, is he talking about himself? Because, yeah, his own wealth. I wonder if it might be that he just wants to avoid saying the wise. Because the wise, I don't know. Mr. Bennett, yeah. The things about rich people, especially in this kind of cultural context, is you're expected to share the wealth. You've got more social obligation mm. to the community. If you're set in a low place, the community doesn't benefit from that. You have no scope for action right. for what you ought to be doing. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so, so it's it's. M- um, highlighting that it's the rich who sit in a low place might then call attention to the the social consequences that result from those people being unable to generate wealth for others through employment or, or benevolence or whatever. Yeah. The, the foolish ruler is causing trouble for everyone. Yes. Yeah, so he, yeah. Like, it, it, yeah. The temptation at this point is to get so political, isn't it? It's just like... Um, <laughs> Um, yeah. Let's so. not get into that. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of 
six and seven are interesting because it's he's contrasting two different things with each other. He um, passes his folly in high places, rich in low places, and then um, slaves and horses and princes and crowns. Um, and it it's kind of to me seems uh, like kind of like I guess the Cincinnati principle of the idea of like those who deserve the power or to be on the horse or in the mm. high place are the people who aren't seeking that. Yeah. They are in the low place. Right, right. are walking on the ground. Itself. Yes. Yeah, so that's interesting. So it might be, you've always got this possibility of um, that kind of double-edged meaning. So the prince is walking on the ground because um, as an act of wisdom and dignity on his part, or the prince. So the, the rich man has humbled himself and the prince is walking. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's very possible. Um, and, it, and it's very, it's perfectly plausible to have those two parallel ways of reading the text. Yeah. Um, did you want to throw anything in? Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there in what, like in what Will said, but I particularly like what you added to it. The first thing you said, um, maybe this is Solomon reflecting on himself. And you've got that peculiar phrase in verse 5, as it were an error proceeding from a ruler, as though he's sort of slightly distancing himself from it, but it or, or being somewhat diffident about pronouncing it as an error, but actually, yes. It's hard to think of another ruler, isn't it, than Solomon when he says this. Um, folly is set in many high places. It reminds me of the king of Gath, actually, in 1 Samuel 21, when David pretends to be mad and dribbles all over his beard and everything. And, and the king of Gath says, I've got, do I lack madmen that you bring another madman into my presence? And it's, it's such a clever thing to record in that way because it's both a critique of the, the fools around him and of him for promoting them to that position. It's like the best people you could find were people who are as bad as a, an Israelite dribbling all over himself. Um, so, maybe, so maybe it's Solomon's you know, end-of-life reminiscences of the foolish decisions he's made. 
And he made some pretty stupid decisions. Right. Right, and then Rehoboam and Jeroboam. It's, like, it's not like he set the, the thing up to, to kind of go off in a good direction, did he? Yeah. No, I like that. Um, okay, let, let me... Aaron, got another question. Yeah. Right. Hmm. Right. Yes. 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 Yeah. No. I like that. The Luke fourteen point again is probably in there somewhere. But the many high places. I, I got. To, okay. I said I wouldn't get political. I, let me get political for a second. Elon Musk. Like, how did he make his money? Well by being extremely intelligent and extremely hardworking. And you remember what he said about taxation? It's such a courageous thing to say. This was before he owned Twitter, he said this. He said, um, the, the, the super rich shouldn't pay taxes. Because when you get to a certain amount of, of wealth, it's not about how much you could spend. It's basically about asset allocation. And why would you transfer money from the people who've proven themselves to be the best asset allocators in the world to the people who've consistently proven themselves to be the worst? And it's like, that's a really good point. So folly in many high places, rich in one low place. And I don't have any brief to defend Elon Musk, but he's kind of got a point, I think. Anyway. All right. I could have politics. All right. Um, verses 8 to 11. It's interesting how the Bible speaks about everything, isn't it? Um, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Okay. What on earth? Okay, let me tell me what I think is going on here. Verses 9 and 10, you've got somebody who's at least trying to work um, in a, a moral and godly way. Maybe not the wisest way, but at least he's trying. Verse 8, you've got something different. What kind of work is being done in verse 8? This is not a difficult question. Yeah, theft and murder and laying... Yeah. Digging a pit is consistently a bad thing. I've looked this up in a few different places. I'll I'll zoom back and find a couple. Proverbs 26, verse 27. Uh, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. It's... The idea there is it's in the context of a bunch of denunciations of different kinds of wicked people, a lying tongue, a hateful person, a whisperer, and so on and so forth, one who deceives his neighbor. And the point there is that you, you've tried to entrap somebody else, and oh, you'll go get into trouble yourself. Um, and then, then the, the next one, a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. I mean, especially in Texas, you're crawling through the undergrowth, you're asking for trouble, aren't you? Um, who knows what might, you might get bitten by. Now, just pause a second. Somebody tells you this about your workplace. The people who are out to cause trouble for you 
will end up causing trouble for themselves. How do you feel about that? Does that make you feel more positive? You're like, but strangely, this portion, which is about what happens to people when they are up to no good, it's, it's strangely encouraging, isn't it? And so here we are, we're setting off into a new portion of this chapter, and we think, this is more like it. <laughs> and then you turn over the page, if you've got my Bible, you get to verse 9, and you're thinking, great, so this is, I'm going to go to the quarry and quarry stones, I'm going to just work hard, and what happens to me? Yeah, it's quite easy to imagine this going wrong, isn't it? I've, have you seen those YouTube videos of people um, splitting massive slabs of um, concrete and they drill lots of little holes, not concrete, massive slabs of granite or marble, I don't know what the rock is. And it might be you know, 15 feet long, six feet wide and they're trying to split it in two and they drill all these holes in it and they, they'll hammer these wooden pegs into the holes and they basically go around and they hammer, hammer, hammer each peg in turn, go around and around and around and then at a certain point, it's like they almost know when that point's going to be. They, they knock the one more peg one more time and the whole thing goes clink and it never lands on his foot. Like, at least not in any of the YouTube videos I've seen. Maybe I'm not watching the fail army YouTube channels, which is probably a good thing to be, you know, there are other things to do. It's quite easy to imagine taking on a task like that and being injured by what you're doing, right? What, why is verse 9 put alongside verse 8? Verse 8 says, the guy who's up to no good has got it coming to him. And we were like, yes. Verse 9 says, you're just quarrying stones and you're hurt by them. Why are they put side by side? You've already worked very hard today, Sammy. We'll let somebody else think. Yeah, go on, Will. Right. Your boss is st- sitting next to you, right? And you're, you're trying to make sure that he knows that you were. I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Different, different branch of the business. Um, All right. So, our, our big boss, Andrew, he talks about. Uh, intelligence, diligence, and integrity. And integrity. Yeah. And so, yeah. the two, he's like, you never want to hire you, you. If you have to pick two of them, you never want to hire somebody who's intelligent and diligent and does not have integrity. Right. Right. Because mm-hmm. they work really, work really, really hard. Right. And do what is to their own needs. And right. end up destroying the, the group. Right, right. Uh, so there could be that. And then the other thing is, um, I guess it could be some sort of anti-workaholic. Yes, possibly. The kind of anti-workaholic. Maybe, maybe. There's, and there's, there's certainly that strand, like in the Psalms, isn't there? Um, it is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Is that maybe? I, I wonder if there's something else going on. Juxtaposing these two characters, Aaron 
somebody online got their hand up? No, this is just from you. This is from you. All right. Okay. We can explain you for this. Well, one. there is somebody coming online. All right. Okay. Well, you, you give us your question then. Yes, yes, yes. Right, so, so it, it reminds, okay, and Aaron, I think you're heading, you're warmer, okay? So back in chapter four, I think, yeah, if you're right, um, you've got fools who seem to do reasonably well and diligent, hardworking people who don't. Who don't. I mean, you've certainly got that at the, uh, chapter nine, verse 11. Um, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, and so on and so forth. Yes, Mr. Right, right. I think that, that, well, at least that's what I was thinking. Thank you. Not everything bad that happens is because you're doing something wrong. Um, Sophia's got something to add to this, and then we'll go on. Yeah. Do you think I think that's right. I think that's where this, exactly where this is headed. And let's see that in a second in verse, verse 10. Because that's, that's like the next step in thinking about work. The, the first thing you run into is like, oh, yeah, if, if somebody is up to no good, some disaster will befall them. They'll dig a pit, fall into it. They're breaking into a house. They'll get bitten by a snake. Um, that's the first thing. Next thing is, you're working really hard quarrying stone, and it lands on you. Oh. So, so I can't infer from the fact that something bad happened to somebody that they were doing good or evil. Neither can I predict that if I always seek to do what's good and to work hard, no disasters will ever befall me. Because I might be just landed on by a bunch of stone arse quarrying. How's that for just at the point where you thought, yeah, you want, I'll, I'll take a job with this company because this is the place where if you dig a pit, you fall into it. Then you discover it's also the place where if you quarry stone, it lands on you sometimes. Sorry about that. Huh. So you've got this tremendously frustrating scenario being depicted. Um, does Ecclesiastes solve the problem? Well, almost. Sophia. Verse 10, if the iron is blunt and one doesn't sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. Um, your brother's sitting next to you. Um, you ever used an axe to, to chop any wood? Um, if you have a blunt axe, yeah, and it, and it won't go through the wood properly, and you have to use more strength to kind of chop the wood, is it more or less likely that you're going to injure yourself? It's more likely. Why? Because <laughs> you have to be more wild with it. We, you know, we've got some wood in our backyard we need chopping up. If you wouldn't, wild. I don't want to see Sam wild with an axe. Exactly. That's, I think that's what's going on in verse 10. This is like, it's not complete, but it's partial mitigation, I think. 
Is it? It's saying, look, okay, sometimes terrible things happen because somebody's up to no good. Sometimes terrible things happen because you were working hard and it just landed on you. But use your brain a little bit. If you're swinging this axe around so fast that it's, because it's blunt, because you haven't taken five minutes to go and sharpen it, don't be surprised if something painful happens and the end comes flying off and hits somebody or something. Yeah, I think, now, so, end of verse 10, wisdom helps one succeed. Um, Have you ever been in that situation where you've been swinging a blunt axe around or something similar? And you know, with retrospect, if you'd just taken five minutes or two minutes or one minute just to sort it out, it would be so much easier. Ever done that? I, I, I do this all the time. Not all the time. Occasionally. When I'm turning wooden bowls on my lathe, you get to a point where the tool needs sharpening. But wood turners love wood turning and hate sharpening tools. It's like we, the, the one thing you want to do is just like, and you've got these wooden curls kind of coming off. And all you need to do is to step to the side, flip the grinding wheel on, and it takes about a minute. But if, before you do it, it feels like it will take forever. And you, when you start to think about it, there are so many domains of work, aren't there, where it's all in the preparation if you, if you get your tools ready, if you prepare it properly, then you won't, ha- you won't make a mess of it. I can tell you another example. I, years ago, when we were living in London, I got up one morning, and I, I can't remember what I was doing. I might have been filleting a salmon or something. And I didn't clear all the expensive crockery off the work surface. you remember? And I broke that Gmuntner ceramic mug. You don't remember? I'm glad you've forgotten that. <laughs> and, I, and I was like you know that would have taken about two minutes to wash it up and put it away sorry there's something in us isn't there that we we or maybe I maybe, but maybe I'm not the only one sometimes lack the wisdom to go about doing the job properly yeah, and again you've got You've got here a, a, a passage of scripture which in the space of half a dozen verses goes from um, prefiguring the silence of Christ before Pilate to when you're at work, sharpen your axe before you chop a tree down. Um, and we had a hand up over here. Um, Aaron, yeah. Yes. Um, quarrying stones for the temple. Yeah, absolutely. And the logs. And also, um, princes walking on the ground like slaves. You know, the Egyptians are not the only ones to have enslaved Israelites. Can you think of anybody else who enslaved Israelites? The Chaldeans. The Chaldeans? Babylonians? Anybody else? Somebody a bit closer to home. King Solomon. Solomon. Solomon enslaved Israelites. Had them working in three-month rotations. 
up in the hill country, cutting down trees, remember? To make the temple. How about that? Not ideal. I've seen princes, sons of Abraham, stars in the sky, walking around the ground like slaves. Not just because of Egyptians, but because of me. Samuel. And don't forget that it was those, it was that same group that brought up the objections to King Rehoboam. Right, exactly. That's how the it wasn't just logs that were split, was it? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we've got six or seven minutes left, and then our extra three minutes up to eighteen minutes past eight, which I know you always let me have, which is very kind. And I want to I want to talk at least about one more section, which is the section beginning in verse twelve, and this. We're going to talk about more. We might even talk about it on Sunday because I can feel it coming in Joshua 24. So um, here we go. Verse 12. The words of a man's mouth win him favour. A wise man's mouth, sorry. Win him favour. But the lips of a fool consume him. This is where we're going. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Okay, come to that one in a minute. Um, It's all about words, yes? You start with the wise man, beginning of verse 12, but then you're on to the words of a fool. Now, why are we talking in this context about the words of a fool. I thought we were supposed to be talking about work. Why are we talking about the words of a fool? Back to verse 3. Yes. So... Verse 3 prepared us for something about words, didn't it? Um, Thank you, Nathan. When the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone that he's a fool, or his his speaking reveals that. Um, My wife has um, something to say, Nicole. Because fools talk about work, rather than actually doing it. Um, I adduce as my witness our friend, uh, Daniel C. Fredericks. Here's what he says. This is the first quote that I found about this passage that made me think uh, Dr. Fredericks needs some airtime in Wednesday night Bible study tonight. Here's what he says. Referring to verse 15, um, the toil of a fool. Yeah, he says, what exactly is this toil that so wearies the fool that he cannot make his way? What exactly is it that makes him so tired? Quote again, I take it to refer to the only labour the fool knows and accomplishes, talking. That is why he is a fool. He only talks, and he does so endlessly. And I think we have to think about this a bit more. Uh, More than we can in a few minutes at the end, but we can make a start. Do you recognise this portrait of somebody who just talks the talk? Full full of, I'm going to do this, I'd like to do that. 
and full of excuses when it doesn't work out. And you, after a while, you can, you can spot this, either in yourself or in somebody else. And the way you spot it is because um, there, is, there is a rational explanation for why it didn't work out last time, or the time before that, or the time before that, or the two or three times before that. And it's never my fault. It was always somebody else's. But next time, it's going to be different. And here's how. Can you, can you see that? Do you see it in yourself? I don't, I don't think it's everybody's sin. I think it is for some. And it's ruinous. And it needn't be in every domain. There'll be, for some folks, there'll be some areas of life where they are all action. Like quarrying stone, for example. Give them stone to quarry, no problem at all. Um, give them their math homework, you might as well give it to a parrot to do. You know, it's like. Um, and there's always an explanation. There's always a reason, and it's never my fault. It's always somebody else. I was. Uh, reading this commentary sent me back to Proverbs 26. We'll finish with this um, because this is um, I think this is probably the the kind of sentiment that Solomon is riffing off when he starts talking about the fool and his words in um, Ecclesiastes 10. Proverbs 26 verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. I've got news for you. There were lions in ancient Judea. Did you know that there were lions in ancient Judea? Um, that's right. Lion of Judah was not a kind of dead metaphor. Um, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. Now, those two, are, that's just hilarious in a way. Like, the image is so vivid, isn't it? Never going anywhere. Just, and those two are juxtaposed. So why are you lying in bed? There's a lion in the road. There's a lion. Of course there might be a lion in the streets. Everybody else is at work. The, the, the justification is extremely good, is it not? I don't want to be eaten by a lion, so I'm going to stay in bed. Um, let's keep going. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. And this is the tragedy of... The sluggard dies of starvation with his hand buried in a dish of food that could save his life. It's like two feet away. All he has to do is, is this. Have you ever been in that position where parents... You, know, you, you found yourself saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You heard that, that you've, you know that expression. Like you, the sluggard is one that you can, you can get right to the brink, right to the point where all they have to do is fall over and they've, they've made it and they won't. They'll, they'll die of starvation with their hand buried in a dish of food. There is opportunity literally right there that could keep them alive and they'll just starve to death. And when you ask them, what's going on? 
let's get together with a bunch of guys and try, you know, we'd love, love to kind of help, give you some advice, this, that and the other. Verse 16, the slugger is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. It doesn't matter how many people have actually got jobs and can hold them down, who are ready to advise and ready to encourage, ready to cajole, ready to bully. In the end, there's always a reason, and the reason is always somebody else's fault. Can you see the problem? Um, I'm convinced that's what's in Solomon's mind when he's in Ecclesiastes 10. The beginning of his words is foolishness, the end is madness. Can you see it just gets, you start down this road, it's just going to get worse. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell what will be after him? Well, the fool always knows. Yeah, I know. No, always knows best, always knows best. And the toil of a fool wearies him. He doesn't know the way to the city. I, uh, Fredericks suggests that the best way to understand this might be in the light of James 4. James 4.13, those who say, come now, let us go to this city or that city and trade and make money. The point is, okay, in that context, they're doing what's uh, presumptuous and sinful. But everybody knows that if you want to make money, what do you have to do? You've got to go to the city. Now, you could do that presumptuously, as in James 4, or you could do it wisely and righteously. But you've got, if you want to, if you're living in a, a deprived rural area of Israel and it's not farming season, or there's nothing to do on the farm, you need to make money, you need to go to the city, get some work, do something. What is a fool like? Doesn't even know the way. Yeah, I, can't, I don't, don't know where, don't know where is Jerusalem. <laughs> it's at the top of that hill over there. <laughs> yeah? Doesn't even know. He's got himself to a position where the, if, if, if you ask the question, is there anything he can do? The answer is actually no. He, there's nothing he can do for himself now. It is pretty hopeless, which is pretty miserable. And you don't want to go like that as your boss. Or your staff. Or your father. Or your brother. Or your husband. Gentlemen. So we've all got this coming to us at men's discipleship breakfasts, Lord willing, in the coming months. Um, and ladies, you can have some as well if you want. I'll talk to my wife and the ladies' fellowship, and it might even sneak its way into a few sermons here and there. Um, I think this is potentially a real challenge for us as a church. We have lots of people, um, older teenagers, young adults, making this transition into the world of work, and I think it would be really good for us to get the right expectations. Um, Anyway, more on that another time. Uh, It's 18 and a half minutes past eight, so I'm... It's time for me to finish. Um, thank you again. Those of you especially who've come for the first time, glad you could find us, glad you came, glad you were able to make it. First uh, Samuel 21. First Samuel 21, yeah. Achish, king of Gath. Yeah, it's hilarious. All right, we should pray and then you guys can go. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for uh, your word, the Bible. We sense here that we may be cracking open the door into... Areas of life that, uh, upon further reflection, uh, we may have more to discover. Your word have, may have yet more to say. We ha- may have more to learn, and it may be a painful process to do so. But we're thankful for that. We pray that you'd help us to navigate with
Christ-like wisdom, those areas of frustration in life and particularly thinking tonight in the workplace that we will likely or certainly encounter. May we not be like this fool who's all talk and no action, but be diligent, cheerful, hardworking, and Christ-like in all that we do. Watch over us, we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much. If you're able to assist with laying out the chairs in the pattern normally done for the Oaks tutorials, I know many of you know how to do that. That would be awesome. They would appreciate it. Thank you very much.